Thank you for choosing to listen to the Emmaus Chapel Messages podcast, a ministry of Emmaus Bible College. Each episode is taken from a chapel message given here at Emmaus. For more information about similar Emmaus ministries, please visit concerninghim.com. Okay, good morning. It's good to see all of you. Lexi uh, just whispered, whispered to me and asked me a question a minute ago and said, how come they don't introduce me? So I want to take a quick moment to introduce Lexi. Uh, Lexi is the senior and EM student in ministry leadership track. Where are you from, Lexi, again? Oskaloosa, Iowa, in a little farming community. She has a heart for discipleship. She has a heart to equip others in the Lord, especially athletes, and helping them find their identity, not in their abilities on the court or the field, but in who they are in Christ. Amen? Lexi, there you go. She's going to graduate with honors this spring. Okay. I just want to thank you so much for, for being here. And I, I mean that. I know that sounds odd because we're all here and you're kind of expected to be here. But it is a joy to be with you. What an awesome gig to have as a teacher at Emmaus Bible College. It is awesome. And I'm so glad that you're here. Out of all the places you could have gone, the Lord led you here and you're here this morning with us. And we're thankful that you're here. We're happy that you're here. It's a great honor. So I want to draw your attention to Ephesians this morning. And we've been talking about spiritual armor, and we've been talking about kind of spiritual warfare or the, the realities that we go through in terms of who we are in Christ and the Christian life, but then the adversaries and the challenges that we go through. And I would submit to you this morning that if we don't recognize both of the reality of who we are in Christ, that we have been justified and made righteous in Christ solely because of Christ, we're dead in the water. If we do not walk through the Christian life and understand and acknowledge that there are other things going on that we cannot see with our senses and that most of the time we don't understand, if we don't acknowledge that there is an enemy that wants to destroy us, who is a powerful foe, as we've been reminded by Dr. McLeod, we are dead in the water. We are at a great disadvantage. So I want to draw us in a little bit more this morning as we walk through some of the armor So we've heard from Dr. Stevenson that there is a spiritual battle going on because of who we are in Christ. We've heard from Dr. McLeod that there is a powerful foe who is after the reality of who we are in Christ. You're going to hear that a lot in the next half hour. It's really key for us to grab onto what the gospel actually accomplishes so that we can talk about what we're supposed to accomplish. We've heard from Mr. Cozen last week a wonderful message that was very challenging and moving to to me personally in terms of the belt of truth and that integrity that we wear as a basis of who we are, that all that we do, all that we respond to, all that we think through is based off of us being made righteous by Christ and our response and integrity and honoring that righteousness. In other words, living it out. So we kind of work through that and see that. But I want to look at the breastplate of righteousness this morning. We just read the text, so I'm not going to read it again. But I just want to point out a couple things first in the context of Ephesians. You see, the spiritual nature of the Ephesians was the worshiping of many gods. It has a lot of implication to it, but let's move on. You see, Paul writes Christians struggling in their old way. 
These are adult, mostly Gentile, non-Jewish believers who got converted and met their Savior as adults. They, they lived a whole life being dead. And all the habits and all the thinking and all the sin and all the things that they experienced in a fallen world as dead people can be very traumatic. And they were struggling to respond to God. And Paul's, Paul exhorts them and says, who you were is not who you are anymore. Amen? Who you were is not who you are. And I think the reason, one of the reasons why we struggle mightily is because we don't believe or we don't take seriously or we forget who we are in Christ. And we make the job of Satan and his, his efforts completely too easy for him. I struggled with this message, preparing it, not because I didn't understand the text, but I was like, what am I going to say? What do I do? So I've revamped this thing so many times, and it might change in the next couple moments. And I think it's because that there is a spiritual battle going on. Pray for me in the next few moments, that I would say the things that God has for you this morning, that Satan would not be allowed to discourage me or strike, strike me down at, at, in any way, that there wouldn't be any oppression going on, and I don't want to sound over, overly charismatic, but there is an adversary, and most likely he's probably listening to what we're talking about right now and paying attention to what you're doing right now and what you're thinking about and what you we're going to do when we walk out of these doors and how we're going to struggle again. And it's just part of our experience. So these people were struggling this way, but Paul draws attention to the, to the fact in their life that they are someone new, and that's kind of the overall theme in light of that. I want to read you a quote really quick about spiritual warfare, warfare from a, a preacher, not really well-known, but he's well-known in my heart, named Bob Diffenbaugh, a Dallas preacher. He says to, in Ephesians 6, Satan's opposi opposition is not to be found so much in the bizarre and the supernatural as it is in that which seems natural and even human. You will notice that the subject of demonization is not raised in our text. Neither is any emphasis given here to lying, lying wonders and signs. Satan tempted Adam and Eve to doubt God's goodness and to dis disobey his word. Job in the form of natural disaster and human illness. David as, as an appeal to his pride. And even our Lord an, as an appeal to natural ambitions and desires. He goes on and says, Paul's focus in Ephesians 6 is not on every aspect of Satan's opposition to God, and man, but on his war with the saints. That's what Paul concentrates on. His war with the saints, us. He goes on to say, really quick, Satan carries on his warfare on various fronts. He seeks to keep unbelievers from the truth. That's really key for us this morning. He seeks to keep unbelievers from the truth. And he may use his demons and possess men, but in Ephesians 6, Paul's concern is with Satan's war against the church and with defenses which God has provided the Christian. He says our duty is not to attack Satan or to defeat him, but rather to withstand his attacks, resist. Our task is defensive, it's not offensive. Those who, walk, those who would attack Satan do not understand Satan's power, he says, or God's plan. It is not we who will defeat Satan, but Christ. Amen? It is not we who will fight Satan or defeat him. It's Christ. There's nothing in the text about us addressing or going after or challenging Satan. To be honest with you, I think that's really dangerous because I'm not strong enough. I'm an easy target in parts of my life. But Christ, 
Christ is the one who has the authority. Christ is the one who has the power. Christ is the one who will win the battle. In fact, it's already won, amen? He's already defeated death. He's already defeated Satan's number one tool, which is death, and the guilt and shame and the threat of death that comes with it. He's already defeated it. The Bible says nothing of these kinds of warfare, but only of our standing fast in the face of his attacks. Some key doctrinal points for Ephesians, just very briefly. It's such a rich treasure of the gospel, the book of Ephesians. It's wonderful. Let me remind you of a couple of them. In chapter 1, here's a few. We're chosen in Christ in love to be holy and blameless. We're empowered by Christ to live in a new way. We're raised with Christ to de- from death to life, citizens of God, a holy people, to proclaim the wisdom of God by standing in the righteousness of Christ. Chapter 3. Back to chapter 2. We're saved not by works, rather saved by grace to do, to do good works God has prepared. Amen? We're not saved by works. We're saved by grace to do good works. There's a very distinct difference in that. We've got to get it straight in our hearts and our heads if we're going to succeed in our walk. Lastly, I would say the treasure of the gospel. We grow up in Christ by practicing truth and love as new people, no longer spiritually immature or children, as Paul will say, letting go our old way of thinking and living, living a new life, not living in accordance to sinful practices, what he calls darkness, but in the truth of Christ, by learning what is pleasing to the Lord. So I want to help you fight a temptation of a message like this. This is not my attempt to point out how much you're failing in the Christian life and that you need to do better. Don't fall into that trap. In other words, don't think that your Christian walk with the Lord and your ability to please him is based off of your performance in front of him or in front of others, especially in this community. We're going to get to that in a minute before we end. That we walk with Christ before God blameless because of what he's done. And that we are saved by grace and we are sanctified by grace. Yes? But we have to respond and let God do his work in us. And a lot of times it's not these overt, gross, immoral things. That's part of it. And there's some of that in this room, in this community. But most of it is these subtle pervasive lies that we tell ourselves in patterns of thinking and feeling about ourselves and who we are. We're going to get to those in a little bit. Since we are fighting for light to expose the darkness, God has given us the breastplate of righteousness. Let's talk about that for a minute as we look at that spiritual armor. And what I want you to remember about the the breastplate of righteousness is that we are made righteous to be righteous. That's the benefit of the armor. We're made righteous to be righteous. So it has two prongs here. He's referring to the work of Christ in us that gives us righteousness, that we're, in other words, justified, made right before God. That's what the whole book is about. And then he, he really also pays attention to what we do with that position before God and how he's changed us. We have to respond and live accordingly now. And we do that in several ways, but we'll talk about that in one second as well. The breastplate of righteousness represents guarding our mind and emotions. The Roman soldier's breastplate was used to protect the vital organs such as the heart and intestines. In the Hebrew mindset, the heart represented the mind and the will. So this breastplate of righteousness is really about an act of us responding to God. Responding to God in righteousness. God takes away the fear of death and the punishment of death 
and he creates us anew so that we can be people who are image bearers like he intended for us. Jesus restores that. Jesus is the new Adam. I love that reality. William Gurnall, in his work, A Tredice on the Saints, War with the Devil, says this about the breastplate of righteousness. Please try to catch this, and it's a little fancy jargon, but I'll do my best to work through it. He says, the righteousness of Christ imparted to they who believe is a supernatural principle of new life, planted in the heart of every child of God by the powerful operation of the Holy Spirit, whereby the endeavor to approve themselves to God and man in performing what the word of God requires to be performed to both, a supernatural principle of a new life. It's not you trying hard. It's embracing the new life that God has already done in you and creating in you, created in you, and now he's developing. He goes on to say, an inward disposition and quality, sweetly, powerfully, and constantly inclining it to do that which is holy, so that the Christian, though passive in the production, is afterwards active and co-working with the Spirit in all actions of holiness, not as a lifeless instrument in the hand of a musician, but as a living child in the hand of a father. Therefore, they are said to be led by the Spirit. Romans 8, it is a principle of new life. The Spirit's work was not to rub against and recover what was prompted by complete deadness, but instead, but to work a life that is brand new, afresh, a a new start in a soul quite dead. You who he has quickened, who he has raised, who were dead in trespasses. The devil comes as an orator to persuade by argument when he tempts. The spirit comes as a creator when he converts. The devil draws forth and enkindles what he finds raked up in the dead heart before, but the Holy Spirit puts into the soul what he finds not there. God has put something in each of us that wasn't there before. And he's not going to use the old stuff. That's what Satan uses. He rakes up the old stuff. Let's keep on going. He says one more thing. I love it. He's, uh, he, but the Holy Spirit puts into the soul with, it, with what he, excuse me, put into the soul what he finds not there, called in the scripture the seed of God, Christ formed in you, Galatians 4, the new creature, Galatians 6, the law put by God into the inner man, Jeremiah 31, which Paul calls the law of spirit of life in Christ Jesus, Romans 8. Our righteousness is the spiritual virtue of Christ in us through being changed. And really, in a nutshell, that's our only defense against the principalities and darkness of our flesh, of the lies of this world, and of the schemes of the devil, our, our, our formative foe, right, we talked about. Put it on. Paul says three times, as Mr. Cozen pointed out in Ephesians 6, stand, stand, stand. Stand blameless in faith, trusting in the promises of God, and from that launch out into living out a new creature in Christ. Stand, stand, stand. Resist, expose. Those are really strong words in the passage. And I'm not sure that we can stand or resist or expose unless we are standing in the right stuff, amen? We have to stand in the right stuff. 1 Peter 1.13, just to, just to reference it really quick, he says, get your minds ready for action. 
Be obedient, children. Do not comply with the evil urges you used to follow. You shall be holy because I am holy. Romans 13 says, um, Therefore let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. It's another play on armor. Lay aside the deeds of the darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave. How do we do that? Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. 1 Thessalonians 5 says, Put on the breastplate of, of faith and love and as a helmet the hope of salvation as you live soberly awaiting the day of Jesus' return. By the way, why hasn't Jesus come back yet? Have you ever asked yourself that crucial question? There's a really simple answer to that. It's profound, but it's simple. It's because his work is not done yet. And guess who his workers are? Turn to one another. Reset your brain for a moment. It's a little teaching technique. I could tell you a joke, or I could jump off the stage, but I'm going to do this instead. Turn to, turn to one another and say that you are one of those workers. That is why Jesus has not returned. And if you would just do your job, maybe he would return a little. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Don't say that to one another, okay? So again, what battlefield does Satan choose? This is really important for our text. Critical. He wants us to go back to what we know. Paul says that we know Christ in our new creation, but he also realizes that the old habits of our sinful nature is what we really know and we remember. And he uses these things as weapons against us. He wants us to justify our sin and accept it. And I would say, not that we don't see it as sinful in our own lives, but that we don't see it as sinful enough to offend God. I'm not going like this. I'm going like this. Man, I don't know if I keep on talking, because that's me. I can, I can get a lot of the major ones. But if you walk around in my head for a couple minutes, you're not going to want to come to my class. You're not going to want to sit with me at the lunch table, and that would hurt a lot. He wants us to justify our own sin, that it's not offensive to God. It's not that big of a deal. And what I would say to us, let's not cover our sin in superficial spiritual platitudes or gestures. It's really easy to do in this environment, is it not? To pretend that we're spiritual when we're really not? It's really easy to allow things to corrode our in, inside stuff and, and really destroy us in a slow death and then we don't end up making it. He wants us to, to think those lies. He wants us to believe the lies and just fake it to make it. I hate that statement that can be true in an environment like this. If you fake it to make it, you're not going to make it. Reach out for help. Be willing to have the courage in Christ to ask for help and get care for your souls and get healing for your minds and seek advice for broken relationships. Be willing to do that. And you can do that in this environment. There's so many people available to you. Do you understand that? There's so many people available in this place that would be more than willing to talk to you and help you and, and, and work with you and care for you. Emmaus is not a perfect place by any stretch because it's made of imperfect people. Don't get hung up on the little stuff like masks 
or vaccinations. Satan will use those things to divide us. And, and they're used as distractions from the real important things in our lives. Don't hide what you need. Don't hide your need. Let others speak into your life. We're justified and sanctified in Christ through grace. We are made righteous to be righteous for God. This is our armor. Paul reminds us even further of some of this process. 2 Timothy 3. I want to read the, the net translation, the, the um, net, net two translation. And I also want to read the message translations. You just hear me out here. 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5 says, But understand this, that in the last days... Be, Excuse me, in the last days, difficult times will come, for people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, slanders, without self control, savage, opposed to what is good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, for, wow, geez, loving pleasures rather than loving God. They will maintain the outward appearance of religion, but will have repudiated, repudiated its power, so avoid people like this. Whew, I have to read it again. Yes, let's read the message. Don't be naive. There are difficult times ahead. As the end approaches, people are going to be self-absorbed, money-hungry, self-promoting, stuck-up, profane, contemptuous of parents, crude, coarse, dog-eat-dog, unbending, slanderers, impulsively wild, savage, cynical, treacherous, ruthless, bloated windbags, addicted to lust and allergic to God. They'll make a show of religion, but behind the scenes, they're animals. Stay clear of these people. We're not off the hook because Paul is referring to us as new creatures or to the Ephesians as that's how you used to live. Those are the sons of disobedience in the text as you, if, you've read, if you've read Ephesians as a whole. Those are the sons of disobedience that we once were of before Christ that Satan is energizing to continue to perpetuate his agenda and the darkness on the earth that has got us in trouble in the first place. Anybody know who C.S. Lewis is? Any fans? Okay. Couple. We'll work on that. Have you read the screw tape letters? Check this out. Mm. Screw, tape, screw tape letters, if you don't know, is a fictional depiction of the affairs and tactics of demons, according to C.S. Lewis. And in this quote I'm about to read, he writes the following, um, he, he depicts the following statement as a senior demon Uncle Screwtip writes to his subordinate demon nephew named Wormwood instructing him how to handle believers. He says the following letter three. Keep in mind on the inner life. He thinks his conversion is something inside him and his attention is therefore chiefly turned at present to the states of his own mind. Or rather to that very self-righteous moral version of them which is all you should allow him to see. Encourage this. Keep his mind off of the most elementary duties by directing it to the most advanced and spiritual ones. Aggravate the most useful human characteristic, the whore and neglect of the obvious. You must bring him to a condition in which he can practice self-examination for an hour without discovering any of those facts about himself which are perfectly clear to anyone who has ever lived in the same house with him or worked in the same office. Take my glasses off for this one. You see my eyes. What? Guys, two of my offspring are sitting in this room. Don't worry, kids. I'm not going to embarrass you. Not too much, at least. They have lived with me since their birth. Do you think they know me? Yeah. 
They do, Mr. B. They know me very well. I think what C.S. Lewis is saying is very, very important for us in light of our battle with Satan and maybe some of the tactics he uses and why we even need this spiritual armor in the first place. Protecting our minds and hearts and remembering the gospel and praying to depend on the power and invoke the power of God and not our own power efforts. Thinking about the gospel in terms of the righteousness of Christ in us and as we struggle and things are not obvious to us. May God show us. May God show us the superficial spiritual areas of our lives, and all of us have them. It's not a message for any one person in this room. It's a message for us as a, as a community of people. You see, in Ephesians 2, Paul makes a link between their former offenses of death and destruction and the temptation of Satan to use those things as new creatures in Christ. That it's a tactic that he uses that he says that formerly you live this way, but live this way no longer and understand that Satan is energizing the sons of disobedience in which we just were, as we mentioned. And that the goal of Satan is to get us to live in accordance to what brought us to death and condemnation in the first place. Where is Satan fighting right now in your life? Where is it? And it's probably in areas that maybe are not obvious to you. It's really easy to look at our morality and say, yeah, we failed there. Those are easy ones. Those are obvious ones. But what about our self-absorption and arrogance and disunity and our, our subtle gossip and slander amongst one another and our complaining? And not that we shouldn't have new ideas and challenge things. It's not the point. It's that our, just our genuine complaining. And it prevents us from actually doing the very thing that we're supposed to do and living in a way that pleases God. Let me translate that for you in our text. Living in a way that pleases God is being a witness or a worker for him. And one of the most powerful ways that Satan will stop that or thwart that is through the things that are so subtle in our lives that we think we're actually righteous in areas when we're not. We're not living that way. And that's all by challenges for you this morning. So what does that tell you about his tactics if he's concentrating on some of these areas, some of the ways we formerly lived, or the ways we formerly walked and thought about in the, in the darkness? What's the solution? The gospel. What's the solution? Spiritual armor. What's the solution? The most powerful weapon on the planet. Way, way more powerful than the tesseract. Oh, thank you that there's some fellow Marvel nerds in the room. I know who you are now. Now it's time to have lunch. <laughs> that powerful weapon is the righteousness of Christ. It's his perfection. It's his holiness. It's his power in us. It's him who justifies, and it's him who enables. Dr. McLeod pointed out a, a few weeks ago when we were there, and he says that the spiritual armor of God are divine gifts and virtues of God's character. At least that's what he intimated, right? And I love that. I love that picture that God's heart is given to mankind in their rebirth in Christ and the armor is given to fight off the forces that try to prohibit us from magnifying that greatness in our lives. The righteousness that provides justification and the blessing of sanctification be holy. And we're going to hear more about the other parts of the armor. armor. So I think Satan is fighting on two fronts. 
I think he's fighting on two fronts, the gospel living and the gospel proclamation. These two things are directly linked, as I said, and we need that armor to fight. To fight for an effective witness and to fight for the Lord who is worthy of it. I think I printed out the wrong version of my message, but you know what? I don't really care right now, so I'm gonna go to my devotion from Oswald Chambers that was supposed to be there in the first place, but it's not, but it doesn't matter because Satan's not gonna deter me from telling this to you. Something happened to the printer. I don't know what happened. Stupid technology. October 4th, that's today's devotion for my utmost for his highest by Oswald Chambers. Listen to what he says. No coincidence today. This is what I just read this morning when I was in the wee hours of the morn. Called to be saints, he says, the vision and the verity. Thank God for the sight of all you have never yet been. You have had the vision, but you are not there yet by any means. It is when we are in the valley where we prove whether we will be the choice ones that most of us turn back. We are not quite prepared for the blows which must come if we are going to be turned into the shape of the vision. We have seen what we are not and what God wants us to be. But are we willing to have the vision battered to shape and use, use by God? The batterings always come in the commonplace ways and through commonplace people. The little things, the things that are not obvious. He didn't say that, but I just translated that. There are times when we do, do know what God's purpose is. Whether we will let the vision be turned into actual character depends upon us, not upon God. If we prefer to, to lull on the, moment, on the mount and live in the memory of the vision, we will be of no use actually in the ordinary stuff of which human life is made up. We have to learn to live in reliance on what we saw in the vision, not in the ecstasies and conscious contemplation of God, but to live in actualities in the light of the vision until we get the veritable reality, until Jesus comes back. Every bit of our training is in that direction. Learn to thank God for making known his demands. The little I am always sulks when God says do. Let the little I am be shriveled up in God's indignation. I am that I am hath sent thee. He must dominate. Is it not penetrating to realize that God knows where we live and the kennels we crawl into? He will hunt us like a lightning flash. No human knows, no human being knows human beings as God does. And you thought I was going to tell you how Satan knows us. Mm -mm. No human being, or I would add, no other entity or force knows us like God does. And you know what God knows about us? Who we are in Christ as his children. I want to end with this last illustration that's very clear in my life and present in my life right now. An experience I had last week. And I want to share with you an area of my life, a blind spot, one of the ordinary areas in which I do not see that there's a problem that I think Satan can, can exploit. I think he has in more than one way. I came home last week on Wednesday, and I was standing in the kitchen with my wife, and we were talking about the day, and we heard this big crash. Long story short, went outside, and there was a, an accident right in front of my house, and my neighbor's car, my elderly neighbor's car, was on my lawn. And I went out there, and I talked to Gordon. I said, Gordon, are you okay? Can you shut your car off? He said, right. He said, man, that was, that was tough. And he said some other choice words that would not be appropriate. But he's like, wow, what just happened? Got him out of his car. He had a sore shoulder. He's contemplating things. He's sharp. He's getting his registration. He's calling a tow truck already. Long story short, 
Ten minutes later, he goes to get in the ambulance as a precautionary um, exercise. And as they're putting him on the gurney, as he lays down, in, in a matter of 30 seconds, he breathes his last breath, and he has a massive heart attack. And he's gone. Someone hit him from behind as he was turning into his driveway with such force that it swung his SUV around and made it go airborne and land in my yard. And I was just talking to the man, living and breathing, a warm shoulder, talking to him, like temperature warm. He's, he's warm, he's breathing, he's, he's, he's living. And now he's dead. Now that man I've spent hours and hours with in the past seven years. I've, I've borrowed so many tools from him. He used to be an engineer and a drafter, and he was a farmer. He had like eight different careers, and he's so sharp. He built a bunch of hot rods. Can I say that again? He built a bunch of hot rods. If you don't know what that means, shame on you. It's my ninth child. Or no, it's my eighth child. I have six. I'm about to get another daughter soon. Amen. And I have another child. Her name's Doris. And she's none of your business. She's 64 Impala, people. Okay? None, nonetheless, dare I, dare I digress. Still serious situation on my hands. Gordon was a neighbor I spent hours with, and I talked to him about everything under the sun. Everything. I even talked to him about religion. Excuse me. I even talked to him about what I did in church and the history of Dubuque as he grew up. He told me a time, he remembers a time where he, he remembered Asbury Road, or, uh, excuse me, yeah, Asbury Road past Pennsylvania that was all dirt road. Imagine that. I can't recall one time that I had the courage to ask him what he believed about Jesus and if he knew where he was going to go if he died. Pardon me. Do you know why I never asked him? It's not on me. I know that. The Lord and I wrestled with that this past week. Do you know why I never did? Because I'm too scared. because I worship the God of convenience and comfort in my house. And I just saw him last week. Last weekend I was working on trimming my house and I looked out my window, my beautiful windows that I just installed and the trim that I was putting around it. And I hadn't seen Gordon for two weeks. And I looked at that window and he was sitting on his porch like he always does, his covered porch with a cup of coffee and his legs crossed. And I thought, man, I should go talk to Gordon. And I bowed down to the altar again of convenience and comfort. And I said, I don't have time to see Gordon. I need to get this done before the stupid frost sets in because I can't work outside. What God or what area of your life do you worship that Satan is going to use in a subtle way? And for me, that's what he's using. He's using it with my daughter that's 12 who's dealing with chronic anxiety. That I can't help her because I worship the God of convenience and comfort because it's too uncomfortable for me. We're, we're getting out of that, by the way. My God's bigger than my own fear and my own sense of convenience. What is it for you that's preventing you from living for God? I'm out of time, but let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you for your goodness. Thank you that you're powerful and you're good.
irrighteous and what Christ has done. Help us. Help us to stand and, and follow you. Help us to be different people for the world because we are different. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. Have a wonderful day. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening to the Emmaus Chapel Messages podcast. This ministry is possible because of the generous contributions from our partners around the world. For more information about partnering with us, please visit emmaus.edu partner.